0: plushcare.com slash weight loss
1: this is the vice guide to right now your inside look into the best of vice it's wednesday march 6th i'm sophie cases today we're talking about the trend of diy spaces going mainstream to try to survive In the past decade, we've seen handfuls of DIY venues close their doors. Think 285 Kent, the Palisades, the Silent Barn. The list goes on and on. And it's true, DIY spaces are somewhat transient in nature, since they're often run in illegal spaces, but these changes signify a bigger shift. Now, many of the cultural spaces that were once underground are trying to pivot to the mainstream and become legal. But vice journalist Caroline Lewis asks, and I'm quoting here, Can they fix their finances and legal status without letting the man get them down? So I sat down with Lewis to find out. Hi, Caroline. How are you? Hi, I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. So I just want to start this interview by acknowledging that we Shall I say I, because you're calling in, I am currently sitting in a space, the vice office, that used to be not one and not two, but actually three DIY venues, 285 Kent, Glasslands and Death by Audio were all here and then taken over by vice for office space. So, I just want to start our conversation about sort of the changing landscape of the DIY scene in New York and elsewhere by acknowledging that I'm sitting in a hot spot right now. Um, you open your story with a phrase, DIY eulogy, which seems fitting as I sit here. Can you explain what that means to you and how the DIY scene has changed in the past decade?
0: sure so i think that the fate of those spaces in williamsburg where the vice office ended up is you know a pretty common trope which is that you know these spaces go to industrial areas or areas that aren't super popular and make them cool, you know, help contribute to the appeal. Um, Developers often exploit them in their marketing materials. And that's really what happened there. There weren't just those spaces in the building where Vice is now, but there was also a whole DIY complex called Monster Island that sort of, you know, in the 90s when Williamsburg wasn't that popular, was really what was there and brought attention to the area, and I think that cycle of what happens to DIY spaces with gentrification is just one part of what makes them so vulnerable and so susceptible to you know closing and people having to sort of regroup and see if they can open another space, which is why I thought that the DIY eulogy, these you know articles that come out sort of eulogizing these spaces, is so common and my article is sort of about people who have been in the DIY scene for a while and are trying to change that narrative that you know the demise of these spaces is inevitable and say that you know maybe some of them should be able to survive and remain mainstays of of their communities.
1: Yeah, so before we get into all of that we're going to get into gentrification a little bit in this interview. We're going to get into what different DIY spaces are trying to do in order to survive. But first I just want to talk about sort of the main factors that are causing DIY spaces to shut down or shift financial models and kind of try to become legal. So in addition to what you explained before, what are the main driving factors that force DIY spaces to close their doors?
0: So it's definitely, it's a mix of rising rent and at least in New York and some other cities, you know, less industrial space being available. And so the space that is available is more expensive. People are continuously pushed into um, different neighborhoods. And then also there was the ghost ship fire that happened at the end of 2016, um, which was an art space in Oakland where a fire, it caught on fire during a concert and more than 30 people died you know it was a devastating tragedy and it also made governments in different cities aware of these spaces because really DIY spaces are everywhere and so they were sort of subject to more scrutiny and the first reaction was that you know they should be shut down but then after that artists started working with governments in different cities to try to support these spaces and say these are an important part of our communities and contribute something to culture and society, which is part of why there's sort of a focus on trying to support them in some way now.
1: Yeah, so I want to talk about some of those efforts from city governments to support these art spaces. Specifically in Denver, there's uh, an initiative called the Safe Occupancy Program. And that was, like you said, born out of out of the ghost ship tragedy. Um, And it seems like an interesting and pretty constructive model to address safety issues in DIY spaces without forcing them to close. So will you explain what the safe occupancy program does? Is it working? And kind of what else is happening in different cities that maybe are similar or different? So
0: in Denver, just a few days after the Ghost Ship fire, there were these two DIY spaces, Glob and Renal that had been around for a really long time and they were shut down by the fire department. The fire department had been aware of these spaces, had done inspections of them, but I think felt pressure to shut them down for code violations after what happened in Oakland. And so there was sort of a backlash from the artistic community and they ultimately worked with lawmakers in Denver to create this program where people living in maybe unsanctioned spaces could come forward and say, you know, confidentially, we have these issues, uh, we'll address them if you'll, you know, if you let us stay. And there was even some money put up by the city and by Meow Wolf, which is a, a DIY collective to support this sort of path to legalization for these spaces. But the challenge that arises is that people then end up investing a lot of money in spaces that they don't own. And the work that they're doing is often very challenging. They're trying to retrofit buildings to comply with zoning and occupancy laws that really don't fit what they're using the spaces for, which can often be a mix of a you know live, work, performance space. And so you end up coming again, up against all these financial barriers and bureaucracy that really are not part of what DIY spaces are supposed to be, which is like this raw creative energy, people coming together and just, you know, creating a space for free expression without having to answer to all these bureaucrats and things like that. So definitely it's something that people have to want to commit to, I think.
1: I'm curious. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems new that you kind of see these relationships and uh, support coming from elected officials?
0: At least in the US, it's definitely new. The Denver program is the first of its kind. And it's something that Oakland's mayor is definitely aware of. There's a new so-called nightmare in New York who's definitely looking at what's happening in Oakland and Denver. Not only are they trying to You know, say to spaces, come forward and we'll help you legalize. But they're also activists are working with city officials to say, you know, here's what needs to change in terms of the laws and code and enforcement in order to make this path to legalization easier. Like I said, it seems like the kind of thing where there are still spaces that are saying, this isn't for us, it's not going to be worth it. But there are those who say, we've invested so much energy and time into building this community and we don't want to be vulnerable and feel like we could be shut down at any time.
1: Yeah, so there are spaces where people are trying to buy property and actually own their property so that they can invest in these kind of safety measures and bring it up to code. And then there are other spaces where that's not an option or that that commitment isn't something that people want to make. And for those spaces that are going to continue to rent out their venue, there is a group you talked about in your story called with friends trying to support those ventures as well and i w- was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that model and whether or not it's working
0: absolutely i will just say one thing which is that it's true that people are realizing you know in this struggle to become legal people are realizing that owning property is probably the next step for art spaces that want to survive long term but it is still a heavy lift and they're aren't a lot of examples of that yet, of these collectives that have actually bought property, but it is something that people are talking about.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's a good point.
0: And so I think With Friends is interesting because they're trying to, what they did is they created a funding platform and it's similar to something like Patreon or Kickstarter, but the idea is that it's really for organizations that build community and physical spaces, and it lets people build custom membership programs. So let's say they have people who are always coming to their shows. Now, when they go to buy a ticket, they'll be prompted to become a member, or they contribute a certain amount each month, so that these spaces are not always, you know, on the edge of financial destruction, always wondering where they're, you know, whether they're going to make rent, and can have more of like a base of financial support to make long term plans. And obviously, you know, it's something that will work better for some community art spaces than others. But there are some that are having success with it already. And it's still very new.
1: Yeah, it's an interesting model. I mean, I'm, I'm curious, like how people in these scenes feel or react to this kind of professionalization or something of their spaces. But I want to go back to an important topic you mentioned up top which is kind of the complicated relationship that DIY venues have with gentrification because they they seem to kind of be both highly affected by this force but also in many ways a driving factor um, or at least are exploited by developers to kind of further development and gentrification so I just was wondering like in this new landscape of DIY spaces and culture where a lot of these venues are trying to go legal, how they're thinking about that relationship and that dynamic.
0: Yeah, it definitely is complicated. One group I talked to, Educated Little Monsters, was a performing arts program for youth of color in Bushwick. And they had been in Silent Barn, which was an art space there. And they really benefited from that, but the woman who runs it also said, you know, the people who live here see this as something that's for transplants and still see it as something that's alienating. And I think the DIY scene tries to be really inclusive, but as people are thinking about how to support it in the future, you know, they're they're really thinking about what are we supporting and how do we make it more inclusive? with Friends, for instance, is not really using the DIY label. They're saying grassroots cultural organizations and things like that. And they're trying to bring up examples of informal art spaces that people wouldn't associate with Brooklyn hipsters, such as, you know, the abandoned buildings where hip hop was born and and things like that. And, And there's also other efforts, I think, when people are looking at how they can change laws or enforcement of code violations and things like that in the city they're trying to think how will these new rules affect people in the neighborhood who are not artists or who are artists but are not part of the DIY scene necessarily or wouldn't consider themselves part of it and so they're trying to think through these things i do think one thing people are thinking about is if they don't have to keep moving constantly to find the next affordable property that will slow down the cycle somewhat of gentrification potentially
1: So I think that that brings me to one of the bigger questions in your story, which is what do we lose when DIY venues close? And also, what do we lose when they try to make that pivot from being underground in spaces that maybe are illegal to to being sort of on the books? What do we lose in those cases? Well, I think
0: there are spaces that can contribute a lot to culture in just a couple of years or a few months of being open and, you know, really make an impact. And then there are spaces like Silent Barn that really evolve over time and become a mainstay in their communities and become open to new generations. And one of the founders of With Friends, Joe Ahern, said, you know, those spaces really have value when they've been around a long time. They have time to think about their purpose. They become more inclusive and potentially you know, give space for more types of experimentation. Um, and so there are spaces that really deserve to stick around and end up getting shut down, not because they have lost their relevance or because they're not popular anymore, but just because of financial or legal issues. And then there is the issue of when a space goes legal and tries to shore up its finances and professionalize you know, it may not have the same artistic freedom as it did before. But as long as there are still new, you know, underground spaces, I think it's okay. I think people who, in New York at least, who have taken their underground spaces and gone legal, you know, they I think they recognize that they serve a different purpose now in the art scene. They employ more people potentially, meaning they employ artists and, you know, give a a more stable space for musicians to perform and things like that. But I think they recognize that there's still a need for another generation of sort of scrappy art spaces with nothing to lose.
1: What do you see as the future of kind of truly DIY spaces that remain underground in in New York, at least?
0: Well, I think that one thing that's interesting is there's this group Meow Wolf that started out as this sort of anarchist, art collective in Santa Fe, painting the walls of warehouses. And now they've evolved into this multi-million dollar company, creating these you know, installations in different cities. And they may not be what they once were, but they are taking some of the money they're making and investing in DIY spaces. And I think it might be the people who come out of the DIY scene and establish themselves more, who may be able to reinvest in... The, the new spaces coming up and know what they really need and not make them jump through bureaucratic hoops. Um, so there may be resources that come out of that.
1: Hmm, that's really interesting. Well, thanks so much for talking with us today.
0: Absolutely. Thanks so much.
1: You can read the full story at vice.com. That's it for now. Thanks so much for listening. And make sure to tune in again on Friday for another Vice Guide to Right Now.